You can open up to John chapter 12. We are beginning a new series this morning that's really going to build toward Easter. Uh, and what we're going to do is basically take um, Holy Week, each day of Holy Week, and look at it a week at a time. Um, so for some of you, this is going to throw you off because you're a literalist and it's hard for you to, to get your head around this because you're like, wait, it's not Palm Sunday yet. I checked. I already checked on my smartphone while the song was going. You know, Rob's mentioning palms. I see balloons. I'm kind of getting the correlation. It's not Palm Sunday. So just take a deep breath. Let it relax. Okay. We're going to take it a little slower. Well, I was thinking about just having church um, every day, the week of Holy Week, but I thought I'd get more of you here if we did this kind of as a Sunday, you know, leading up towards it. So for the next four weeks, we're in a series just building toward Resurrection Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday morning. And, um, and my, my, you know, our, our thought on this is, is this, that if, if a day of the week has its own name, it's probably pretty important in, in Christian circles. So Palm Sunday is what we're on right now. Uh, we're going to move into what's, what's called Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and then Resurrection Sunday, or, or Easter Sunday, as, as some would call it. If you were to take the Gospels, um, and uh, if you're in John 12, this will work really well, but if you were to take the Gospels and you were to just put your finger right at about the triumphal entry, which is what we're going to look at today, and then look at... Look at how much is written within that gospel, starting at the triumphal entry and understanding that the triumphal entry is the last week of Jesus' life. What you'll find is this. Here's the book of John. I'm in John chapter 12. Um, If you go to the end of John, you'll see that there's 21 chapters to it. So so John takes the first 12 chapters, uh, the first 11 chapters, to talk about all of Jesus' life up to the last week of his life. Then he takes the remaining chapters all to discuss seven days. What you get a sense of is that as you read through the Gospels, this last week, what we call Holy Week in, in Christendom, is really, really important. If you're, t- if you're building a movie or building a story, you're going to spend the most amount of time developing what is the most central part to this. If you look at the Bible as a whole, you could easily say that the Old Testament really points toward this event, this one week in history. The Gospels build towards this one week. The book of Acts and the, and the rest of the New Testament looks back on the events that happened this week. All that to say, we're going to look at these four days um, uh, in successive weeks, and it's a really important time. Now, John has done something in his gospel. I wanted to read it in John um, uh, because of the fact that, that he does something kind of, kind of interesting uh, with it. He, he says, like some of the other gospel writers, uh, he reports that Jesus keeps doing things, and, and he keeps saying this, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. So he would do something, uh, and, and, and then they would say, well, Jesus, go do this more publicly. And he would keep saying this refrain, my time is not yet coming. It's kind of building towards something. And this week, this triumphal entry, his time has come. Okay? And evidently someone else's time has come on the phone and she's dealing with it, which is good. Um, his time had come. And that's, that's exactly what the, what the triumphal entry is all about. Uh, we typically have a tradition here at Neighborhood Bible Church. I say tradition because there's freedom in this, but we tend to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, every third Sunday of the month. Um, and someone asked a few weeks ago, they were a visitor, they said, hey, when do you celebrate communion? I said, typically on the third Sunday of the month, but we reserve the, re- the right to receive and celebrate communion any time that we gather because the Bible gives us that freedom. In this month of March, th- through leading up to Easter, we're going to celebrate communion every single week to kind of highlight it and to kind of make it this special thing, really focusing on these elements. So you can expect um, to come and celebrate communion probably in some, some various ways, some, some different ways than just necessarily uh, passing the tray. My hope for this, I've been praying for this, um, for this Easter season. And my hope for you, my hope for myself, is that we would see Jesus afresh in this season. That we would see him um, maybe in a new light, Maybe it's just reminding us of our first love. Maybe it's, maybe it's teaching us something new. Maybe it's reminding us of something old. Uh, this week, uh, we're going to look at the word celebration. And the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, there was a party going on. There was a celebration. Now, if you grew up in church and we had palm branches everywhere, you would get 
that this is kind of a celebrative kind of thing. But if you didn't grow up in church and you saw palm leaves all over the church, you'd wonder what happened. You know, if you grew up in hurricane land, you'd think maybe there's hurricanes in San Jose. I'm not sure what's happening. Why is there litter all over the ground, right? So in our cultural context, you walk in and you see balloons and you get it, right? There's a party going on. There's some kind of celebration happening. Um, some adults, it's funny, I was watching some of you as you came in. You're just drawn to balloons. You, you're just, I, I saw you kind of playing with them. The kids were playing with them. I, I, it was a very hard thing to keep them gathered here, kind of like palm branches here in the middle aisle, because the kids kept gathering them, and they're, they're working with them. They're moving them around. Uh, but balloons just kind of, you know, get that for us. Uh, the, the characters in this story, there's a few named characters in this, in this triumphal entry scene, but most of them are unnamed. There's crowds that are lining the streets. Rob already, already mentioned this, but crowds are really fickle. All crowds are fickle. I don't know if you've ever been traveling, uh, and there's a delay. Um, you know, there's, they're, they're, they're all sad, right? And then someone comes on and makes an announcement. They're all attentive, right? And they're all kind of hopeful, and, and then there's good news, right? And they love this airline. Wow, they really resolved it well. And then what happens? The good news falls through. Now they hate the airline. They're going to take up a class action lawsuit against you. I mean, crowds are just fickle, right? If you're a pro athlete, you get this probably more than, than anyone else. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Roberto Loango. You may have heard of him. He's a goalie. If you're a hockey fan, uh, he plays goalie for the Vancouver Canucks. He has the most wins and the most shutouts in any uh, of any goalie from from this uh, from this franchise, in 2010, he won Olympic gold for Canada in the city of Vancouver. Things are going well for uh, Roberto in this season. The following season, with his team, he leads the Canucks to their first Stanley Cup Finals. That's like the Super Bowl for for, for hockey, right? The first Stanley Cup series in 17 years. Things are going well for this goalie. Not only that. He, he goes all the way up until game seven. He's within one game of winning the cup for them, and they lose. Olympic gold medal, all-time winning a goalie, all-time shutout leader, almost got them to the Stanley Cup. That was at the end of 2011 season. Today, a couple nights ago, the Sharks played the Vancouver Canucks. He sits on the bench while a new white knight is going to supposedly lead the, the Canucks on to glory land, and he is literally riding the bench because of what? Because crowds are fickle. And pro athletes get this. All of a sudden, all that was going great, they were so quick to turn on him. The media had a field day just blaming, kind of pinning things on this goalie, not realizing how much he had done to get him there. Sports is probably our easiest way to kind of identify with, yeah, the fickle nature of the crowd. How about in, in Bible times? Let me just give you a couple of crowd arguments just to kind of spark your memory. Um, there are some people following John the Baptist. John the Baptist's whole message was this. He's the cousin of Jesus, by the way. He said, he said I'm, I'm the one pointing the way to Messiah. That's my only role. That's my whole big deal in this. And some followers of him at some point get up tight because people are starting to follow Jesus instead of following their little crowd. So there's an argument between them and kind of people who are going off to Jesus. John kind of puts the kibosh on the whole thing and says, look, that's the whole point. That's okay if that happens. Um, how about the crowds that cheer when Jesus, you know, kind of provides magic meals, right? All of a sudden, everyone's like, we're all full. We don't know really how it happened. Yippee, Jesus. Then Jesus makes these comments. He offers himself up as food, pointing toward communion, pointing toward the cross. Boo! The crowds start to boo and hiss him and leave him. They're like, we like the free food. We don't like your strange teaching. And they bolt on him. Over and over, we see Jesus kind of gather a crowd because of signs and miracles that he would do. And then it seems as if, as I read the Gospels, it seems as if Jesus intentionally thins the crowd out sometimes. Crowds are fickle. Uh, one week, the, the day we're looking at uh, today, you know, they're, they're, they're literally chanting and, and singing praises to him, Hosanna. And that gives way to what? Give us Barabbas, right? We'll take that criminal over this guy right here. Crucify him. I mean, this is a few short days that it went from triumphal entry to crucify him. Bottom line is this. Today's media darlings are tomorrow's punchlines. We see this today as, as strong as, and, and as evident as it was in Bible times. 
As we look at this one event, we're going to take one event and just look at it this morning. And as we do, here's, here's the big driving idea that I want you to get down. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. There's no, there's no cute space for it. You've got to create it. Okay? It's, got, it's a creative process. We're going to work together. Uh, here it is. The, the big idea is this. There's always more to Jesus. There is always more to Jesus. For the sake of our conversation today... The crowd is celebrating Jesus. And if you think about it, there's way more to celebrate with Jesus than just what they were figuring out, wasn't there? There's way more to that. So not just in the, in the purposes of celebration, but in our case today, we're going to focus on that. But the big idea is this, that there's always more to Jesus. If you're in John chapter 12, we're going to read the account in just a moment, and um, and before we do, uh, watch the news in, in the coming weeks, because Palm Sunday is actually not for a couple of weeks. We're a little ahead of the game here, because we're Silicon Valley. We're on top of things. Um, and you watch the news. You'll see images of people who are going to reenact what we're about to read. The events that happened um, near Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, are going to be reenacted around the world. I would actually encourage you to go and, and get some pictures, Google some images, uh, watch for some news stories, and just see how this is reenacted in, in different locations. What's kind of fascinating is this. It's kind of a strange irony. But I would, ga- I, I would guess this, that many people who go and do that as sort of a cultural thing. Their families go and do that. They reenact, you know, right through the, you know, through the streets, and people are waving palm branches and putting them down and putting their cloaks down and all that kind of stuff. In a strange irony, I would, I would venture to guess that many of the crowds who will go participate and reenact this event will actually reenact another part of the story, and that is this. Much of the crowd in Jesus' day, the day it actually happened, didn't get it. They didn't know what they were celebrating. They weren't really clear on who Jesus even was. They were celebrating this little tiny slice of the pie and not getting the rest of it. And as I look at pictures, and as you look for pictures in the coming weeks about Palm Sunday and people celebrating it, I think a lot of people are doing the same thing. I mean, they're actually reenacting the event way better than they even intend to because they might be part of that crowd that is missing the point of Jesus, and yet they're participating in this reenactment. Let's read. I want to read from, I think, the more obscure version. John veers off from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they have, that means, the same view. They kind of take a lot of the same view. Um, and one of the reasons you know this is an important event is that all four gospels record this event. And there's, there's, there's not that many things in Jesus' life that all four Gospels say this is important enough to, to, to get this in. But I want to read John's account because I think it's, um, it brings a few different nuances. I'm challenging you and your community groups to, to read some of the others so you can kind of get a more accurate picture. But John chapter 12, verse 12, says this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. All right, here are a couple of the facts of the story. Again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of flesh this out and kind of paint a a, a little bit more of a robust picture on some of the events. But bottom line is that this is the Sunday before the crucifixion. 
So we're looking at just a, a, a few days before betrayal and crucifixion, and this is Jesus entering into the city on a borrowed donkey. I like John's subtle way of saying he found a donkey. There's actually a little miracle that takes place and how the donkey goes on, and he, he foretells that the donkey's going to be there, but John seems rather unimpressed by that, kind of blitzes over that part. The other three pick up that part of the story. The disciples spread their coats on, on the donkey for Jesus to ride. The crowds turn out and pave the way with palm branches, uh, while waving them and literally singing their praises. What I like about John's, and again, it just kind of caught me fresh this, this year reading this, um, is that he ties it back to Lazarus being raised from the dead. So someone being raised from the dead, kind of a big deal, right? So even Roberto Luongo, who's sitting on the bench, he still won Olympic gold for Canada. I'm sure that wherever that guy goes in Canada, people are going to be like, you got the gold medal on you? They still remember that, right? Even as fickle as crowds can be. So Jesus, the word about Jesus and the idea that he actually rose, uh, raised someone from the dead still was getting out. And so people came out in droves to see what was going on. Those are the facts. What I want to do this morning is spend just a couple of minutes kind of going beyond the facts a little bit. So we'll take the, the procession. Uh, again, Jesus no longer is telling his disciples, shh, keep it quiet. When he healed someone, he would often say, Make sure you don't tell anyone about this. All of a sudden now, Jesus is stepping into the daylight. He's stepping into the spotlight, and he is publicly receiving proclamation of, of, and, and praise, public worship. That's a giant shift in the story. All of a sudden, he's, he's allowing this, this praise to go on. He's being hailed as a king. Think about this for a second. Um, not... Maybe so big of a deal in our country because we're pretty lenient this way. But try going to another country and entering the capital city and have all your closest friends and relatives cheering you as a king. That's going to get rough for you, right? Uh, we had a college student one time who was going to impress his girlfriend. We go down to, to Disneyland, and, um, and I get down there, and I'm checking our college students in, just kind of getting things going, and I get word um, that one of our college students is in custody at Disneyland. And I'm like, how do you get in custody at Disneyland, you know? Um, everyone's smiling at Disneyland except the big burly security guys. They're, they weren't smiling at all. So I go find out what was happening, and this guy who was kind of, he wasn't even with our trip at the time, he was going with something else, he was trying to impress his girlfriend, and so he decides to dress as Goofy at Disneyland. And he got, like, the real Goofy suit. And he's walking around Disneyland as Goofy, and he's kind of a Goofy guy anyways, and guess what happens? Kids want his autograph. So he's, like, signing their books and doing all this stuff. Found out that day, Disneyland frowns on that. Okay, they don't like you dressing up as your own character and going around pretending to be one of theirs. Why? Because you're an imposter, right? They want to control all of that. They want to make sure that their characters are well-trained, and it really is the happiest place on earth, okay? So, so he got, he got near booted out. Uh, he promised to, to rid himself of all goofiness. It didn't quite work. Um, and he got to stay for the day. But don't try that. That's, it made an impression on the girl, but they're not married today, okay? They're both, they both went their separate ways. So just let that be kind of a, kind of a lesson for you. Imagine dressing up as a king. Imagine posing as a king. Imagine going in as a king um, today, anywhere. Um, that's, that's a risky venture. That's, that's, a, that's a big deal to, to have that go on. Now, having just seen a very widely publicized inauguration, uh, it was all over the news and all over the, the TV screens, and people worldwide watched our own presidential inauguration, uh, there are some things that were similar, and there's some things that were very, very different. But think in terms of that. That's how public and big of a deal this was. Imagine for a moment being a Roman guard. I, I would imagine that Romans who were keeping track on all that was going on probably saw this thing, and it would be something like this. It would be something like one of us who may have gone up to San Francisco to watch kind of the ticker tape parade after the Giants win the World Series, okay? Massive buildings, just throngs of people, right? Lots of stuff going on. And then we go out to kind of some podunk village, and there's kind of a little, you know, community festival and a tiny little parade going along, and all the people are just going wild. We would kind of look at that and go, how cute. You know, that's kind of cute. You know, because we would envision this big giant thing, and here's this kind of quaint little thing going on. I would imagine those who, who, were, who were kind of watching over the scene probably had something like that going on. Kind of smirking, right? 
Like, like this mock sign that's going to come up one day. Like this crown of thorns that's going to be jammed on cruelly onto Jesus' head. It's kind of like, how cute. This is not a threat at all yet. And they're kind of, and they're kind of watching this. To the Jewish people, it was a big deal. I mean, it's, it's really, really hard for me to get my head around what it's like to live in an oppressed land where, where people are over me and stripping me of everything that I want to be doing and all of my cultural heritage and all of that's a mockery, but that's what the Jewish people were living under, right? That's, that's what they were living with. And all of a sudden, there was a glimmer of hope. All of a sudden, they thought, wow, this is a good day. This is an exciting day. We've been told from the time we were little that a Messiah is coming. I think he's finally here. I think this really is the one. Did you hear that this is a guy that raised Lazarus from the dead? I know, I know. That's why we're all here. How about the disciples? There's a small handful of disciples who are there that day. I would imagine they are kind of looking around and seeing all of a sudden there's lines of people who are cheering for their guy. They're really excited. All of a sudden, I wonder if they're going, I know, right? I mean, finally, it's like a startup getting some traction. They're like, yes, I mean, Jesus... This has been our strategy all along. Let's do some of these these things publicly. Let's not make radical... I wonder if they were on edge waiting for him to make one of his radical statements that was about ready to just turn the whole thing south, you know? Eat my body and drink my blood. No, Jesus, not right now, you know? Let's just have the party. Let's get the waving palm branches just for a little bit. Can we just enjoy this? But I bet they were looking around, kind of going... I mean, they feel the season change right here. The story has changed. He's receiving public worship. He's being hailed as, as king, and he's not telling them to, to, to be quiet. Instead, he's receiving it. But this inauguration of a king is so very different. The clothes he wears are poor man's clothes. They're commoner clothes. They're not royal robes. He's not, he's not coming in with a massive procession. He's on a meek donkey. His goal as he enters into this city, an interesting line that we just, that we just read, we're going to look next week at the word confusion as we read about Maundy Thursday and just kind of all the events that took place there. But here's all this celebration and joy coming on, and yet at some point Jesus looks over the city and weeps over Jerusalem. He's coming to conquer not with force but with love. His strategy is self-sacrifice and not to come in and exploit a people and kind of, and kind of grow an army. What's powerful as we think about Palm Sunday and as we think about the triumphal entry, we know the story. We know where this is going within the week. But I I hope that, I hope that you've read the rest of the story. I hope that you've read your Bibles all the way through to Revelation. Because part of the hope of a Christian is there is a second inauguration coming. The king is returning. And this time he won't be in meekness. This time it won't lead to the cross and to death it will, be, it will be in victory. It will be in power. He will come and he will have the last battle won. And those, are, and those are beautiful things to be thinking about. All right, that's the procession. How about the prophecy? John draws out, like a couple of the other gospel writers, this passage from Zechariah 9.9. That's the passage that, 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 that John inserts. Important to note this. Some people just think there's no connection between New and Old Testament. John, the gospel writer, is attributing that passage as now fulfilled prophecy of Jesus. Jesus, numerous times, is recorded as pointing out prophecies that were made hundreds of years before, and he attributes them to himself and what's going on uh, in, in that moment. The way John writes this is he kind of gives us the facts, but then do you see that he kind of adds his own color commentary? Uh, Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So John's adding his own little commentary to this, saying, look, I lived through this, and while we were there that day, we didn't understand what was going on. We didn't understand this, but now looking back, Jesus has been glorified. What's that talking about? Yeah, it means he's been, he's been raised from the dead. He's in his glorified body. After he was glorified, and we really saw him for who he is. Remember, there's more to Jesus. Man, now I can come back and write this story. Here's how this day took place, and here's what we were thinking at the time, but here's what was really going on. And he, and he points out this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. Now, I don't know if you've ever asked this question, but I have. Why would a king ever ride into his capital city on a donkey instead of a war horse, Right? 
I grew up loving horses. I still love horses. And I remember thinking the story would be so much better with a massive stallion coming in, you know, tromping on the balloons. I mean, the, the palm branches. You know, just, just coming in in power, snorting. Why a donkey? Right? I mean, that's, that's, that's a question that has come to my mind. Uh, in the ancient Middle Eastern times, I didn't live there, but I'm, I'm taking the word of our scholars on, on this. Leaders rode horses if they rode to war. They rode donkeys if they came in peace. You could jot these down, look them up later if you want. But 1 Kings one thirty three mentions the great Solomon riding a donkey on the day that he was recognized as the new king. He came in peace. Uh, several other references um, of, of, of this in the Old Testament. I think part of the key to this, though, and I'm going to put it on the screen so you don't have to try to find Zechariah right at the moment. But Zechariah 9.9 is what is quoted here. But the very next verse, and again, whenever you look at Scripture, look in context, the very next verse adds some clues as to what may have been going on. Zechariah 9.10 says this, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will, his rule will extend from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Do you notice the many details of symbolic peace here? What is a chariot but the main vehicle of war? He's going to take that away. There's no need for for horses used in war anymore. There's no need for bows and arrow, weapons for fighting. His message will be one of reconciliation. His rule is going to be from sea to sea. The king will control... um, and it will extend his territory with no enemies and no concern, no fighting. That's the kingdom that he comes to set up. Now think back to what was proclaimed and sung by angels at Jesus' birth. Here's one line. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward all men. That's the inauguration. That's the real inauguration, right? Pretty humble. And here he is now being realized in kind of a new layer. Not the final layer, but a whole new layer is, is being shown here. This fulfilled prophecy was not just about his mount, meaning his donkey. I think it was almost as much about his reign and the kind of reign that he was going to usher in. Jesus said this, peace I, 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 I give to you. I, I, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He came to usher in peace. That was his charge. Finally, I want to just look at the praise that goes on. There's all this praise, all this adulation, all this singing, all this cheering, all this balloon palm waving, right? Just a big party going on. And it's exciting the disciples, I'm sure. They've been doing this already. They've been, they've been already building toward this. It's frustrating the religious leaders. In fact, it's actually provoking them. John has this great line. And look at how jealousy makes you not think logically. Anyone attest to that? You don't need to raise your hand because it will give something away maybe if you're sitting next to someone. But if you've been around someone who's jealous, all logic just shoots out the window. And they're no longer thinking well. The religious leaders are jealous over Jesus. Here he is getting all this praise, all this adulation. And then it says in verse Uh, 19 of John's gospel here. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. They're whining. Has the whole world gone after him? No. I mean, relatively speaking, this isn't a victorious Roman king with hordes and hordes of people. It's It's not the San Francisco Giants World Series parade, right? This is still more, you know, middle America, small town little parade. But jealousy has gotten the best of them. Here's another scene. You can, you can look it up uh, later. But Luke tells of their commending or commanding Jesus to rebuke the praise that is coming his way. They tell him, rebuke your disciples for this. How dare you receive this kinds of praise? Do you remember what he says back to them? He says, if they don't praise, the very rocks will cry out, right? Read Romans 8 sometime with that in mind, that all of creation is under the curse. All of creation is waiting to like burst forth when Jesus returns. 
I don't know how that's going to look exactly, but Jesus saw things in such a way that he thought, wow, if they were to pipe down, there'd be such a burst of praise right now because I'm coming in to, to fulfill this part of the plan that the creation itself would start to cheer and, 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 and praise. So instead of acquiescing to the demands of the religious leaders and saying, oh, okay, instead he goes full force and says, no, I am, I am receiving this praise. You want to know who Jesus thought of himself. Some people have a, um, a misconception. And by the way, in the future few weeks here leading up to, to Jesus, you will read all kinds of wacky stuff. If you watch things on TV, you will watch all kinds of wacky documentaries trying to describe away the cross what it means, the resurrection from the dead, and what all of that means. You will see all kinds of stories come up. One of them, one of the myths that will be put forward, I'm sure of it, because it's put forward every year, is that Jesus never claimed to be God. He just went around the countryside doing good. His wacky followers kind of got it in their head, and it didn't even really, you know, really come to be until hundreds of years later that they started to attribute all this significance to what he did. Now, there's so many holes to that story that I don't have time to, to, to look at. But one of the most profound things, I was having a conversation with someone I love dearly about this. And I challenged this person. I said, would you just go read what Jesus said about himself? Just, just, read, just read the Gospels and see what Jesus said about himself. Here's the point of just right here, just a really subtle thing. Jesus allows himself to be worshipped as God. Do you know how much fear is in a God-fearing person, if someone, if any one of you ever were to do what went on in the scriptures a few different times that we have recorded at least, were to fall down and start to worship me, I would do exactly what they do because I fear God. It would make the ground we're standing on very dangerous ground. I mean, you see the disciples who would do this. Paul was, was, was preaching one time, and someone fell in and worshipped him. And you see, I mean, just immediately, this is worth stopping the service for and saying, get up, I'm a person just like you, knock it off. God takes this pretty seriously if you worship someone else, and if that person receives the worship. Jesus is receiving the worship as God. And he's not rebuking anyone. He's publicly receiving it. Uh, clear sign of who he thought he was or who he knew himself to be. Now there was, what was being said, just a little shift here to kind of think about uh, some things for, for today. Um, what was being said of Jesus was accurate. The fact that they were celebrating him coming in as a king was accurate. But as I mentioned earlier, I think many people there didn't catch exactly what they were doing. It actually makes me think of, of today's day and age. I wonder how many people come to a worship service around America and around the world and sing accurate lyrics about who Jesus is. Jesus, you're the awesome God. Jesus, you rose from the dead. Jesus, you love us. Those are all true statements. But they don't even know what they're participating in. They don't even understand, really, what they are saying. There's more to Jesus than you and I first knew. Think about to the, to the first time you heard about who Jesus was. Maybe you heard about him as a kid. And so you knew kind of just a, just a little sliver of him. Most in this room would say, man, if I look at what I know and understand and experience of Jesus today versus when I first met him, there's so much more to him. You know it's beautiful? I don't care if that's 10 minutes or 10 years. There's way more, right? And so as we march forward, we can, we can know that there's more to him now even. Some of you are in different kinds of seasons right now. Isn't it true that different seasons reveal different components of who Jesus is? In a really good season of life, and by good what I'm meaning is, times are kind of easy. You're kind of comfortable. Things are kind of up and to the right in your life. Jesus is there. And you learn things about Jesus in those kinds of seasons. Some of you have walked through some really, really dark valleys lately. I know I have. And in, in those seasons, you learn and see things about who Jesus is, that although you've sung this same song in a different season, man, singing it today means something completely different. Do you see why in this Easter season... This Easter season can be unlike any Easter season you've ever experienced before because you're different than you were last year and the year before and the year before that. 
So my prayer is that you would see more of Jesus in this season. What do you do when your picture of Jesus differs from the real Jesus? What I mean by that is this. We all have a mental picture of who Jesus is. This is true of anyone. If I think of Trent Cummins, and Trent Cummins was mentioned this week by my kids. It was positive, don't worry. This time. Um, and, and when Trent Cummins' name comes up, we don't, we're not quite that formal. We usually just call you Trent. So Trent came up, and when Trent came up, I had a picture of Trent in my mind, right? And so I kind of understood who he was. We do this with all relationships. When I mention Jesus, when we sing about Jesus, we, we have a mental image of who we're talking about. If you're an honest disciple who's walking in faith, what happens is this. You come along some ideas that butt up against um, your image of Jesus and what's now being revealed to you about Jesus. It might just be, I hope most often that takes place in the scripture. I hope that most often you are reading something and you catch something you say, wow, um, that's offensive to me. That offends my sensibilities. I don't like that about, did Jesus really say that? Let me reread that. Did Jesus really just say that? He did. What does that mean? How does that fit in with my, my whatever it is, my nice Jesus, my controlled Jesus, my Republican Jesus, my whatever Jesus that I have? So when your preconceived picture of Jesus uh, is confronted by the real Jesus, by a, by a new revelation of, of who he is, what do you do? And I say, what do you do because of this? If it came out that Trent was actually a black belt in karate, that would surprise me. I've never fought Trent. But I would make a point not to fight him now, okay? I mean, if I understood that, and that was revealed to me, and it was confirmed, and I really believed it, I would have a new picture of who Trent was. Now, here's what I could do. I could say, you know what? I think I can take Trent right now. Even with his airsoft gun, I think I could take him, okay? I'd need some goggles. But I could control this Trent. I can right now, I'll be, be nice to you, because you might be bigger than me someday. But if I find out he's a ninja, right, or a black belt, all of a sudden, I, I can choose to say, I don't really like that, though. That's scary to me. He could take me now. So I could cling to my old picture of Trent. Does that make sense? Or I could venture in and say, wow, that's news. Um, I'm going to process that. That's going to take some time to get it used to. But I guess it's true. I'm going to go with the real Trent. Do you know that people all the time are faced with that dilemma? We have, we have Jesus of, as we think him. We have Jesus that we, we like and we kind of control and, and he agrees with us. And we've made a few adjustments to kind of, you know, fit, fit who he is. And then a new revelation comes along. A new demand that Jesus makes of us comes along. And we say, ooh, I don't really like that. That's not very comfortable to me anymore. And we have that same option of leaving Jesus in a box, leaving him controlled, leaving him as kind of a nice, you know, maybe savior, uh, Sunday savior. Fox, you know, foxhole trouble, uh, test tomorrow kind of Jesus. But man, making demands on my Monday afternoon, making demands of me on my vacation, my wallet, I don't know if I like this Jesus. I don't know if I like the, the whole life Jesus that's being presented to me. There's an incredible scene where the disciples teach us a lot. Remember the crowds are fickle? Well, there's this one scene where Jesus thins the crowds out yet again. And then he turns to the disciples and he says, are you going to go away too? Do you remember their response? Their response is this. Where would we go? Who else would we go to? And they make this proclamation. You alone have the words of life. You're what's true. We found what's true. We don't like it either. But where else are we going to go? We know that this is true. We've walked with you. Man, there's so much for us modern-day disciples to glean from these bumbling disciples when they pull one off like that. They've not chosen to say, this is now too much. I'm going to leave you as kind of a nice mythical figure. Instead, we've left everything, and we're going to keep following you. It's found in John 6 if you want to go read it yourself. I want to include a component. Um, each week we're looking to hope. Each week we are pointing toward Resurrection Sunday. 
But Resurrection Sunday falls kind of flat if you don't get the rest of the story leading up. That's why I love services that, that go really dark and really despairing on Good Friday. So that the brightness of the morning, of Sunday morning, cuts through the story and you have a real reason to celebrate. Think of what the crowds were cheering. Now we have to, we have to project this somewhat because the, 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 the scriptures aren't overly clear. But there are clues to us. The crowds are cheering something, but it's, it's, it's not exactly what Jesus is celebrating. It's not the same thing. It appears that the hope that they had was that their current circumstances would improve. For the most part, you could take most of the people who were there cheering and say, wow, if this guy has the power to raise someone from the dead, I think he might have the ability to finally do something about this, you know, this occupation that's been going on with these pesky Romans. I think we've got a guy on our side who's, who's a black belt. I think he's got some power. I think he's going to be able to help us out. And in a nutshell, they were cheering, but it was really, really short-sighted cheering, wasn't it? They were looking for something temporal. Jesus disappointed this agenda because there was so much more to Jesus, as we've been saying. I thought about people's conversion stories and how it kind of mimics the triumphal entry. Think about your own and just think if any part of this fits with you or people that you've known before. People get excited about Jesus. They go to a Billy Graham crusade. They receive Christ at church. They go to camp and they get really excited about this Jesus who can really forgive their sin, really give them purpose, really walk in a new way. In essence, they pick up a palm branch and they cheer that. I'll take that all day long. But then their agenda and their priorities, which are temporal, which are short-sighted, and in, in essence are, I think this Jesus is going to improve my circumstances. And when Jesus doesn't fulfill that agenda and disappoints that part of the storyline, what happens? Sometimes, not always, Sometimes that new convert, that same one who just gave an amazing testimony in the baptismal, who went forward, they were crying for Pete's sake. I mean, this was real. Maybe it starts with a muttering, but you get the same Judas betrayal going on. You get the same Peter denial going on. You might even get the crowd saying, give me Barabbas, give me something else. I've tried Jesus. You might even get someone who goes so far as to say, crucify him. I've seen this over and over and over as a pastor. I've seen kids go up to camp and get super excited about Jesus and try as I might. I'm like, no, 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 let me try to paint a real picture of Jesus so it's not just like a balloon that comes home and it pops the second you get your, your first F or your first heartbreak or your parents scold you for something that you didn't do. Please let me not let you, you know, think that that's what, what, what Jesus is. And time and time again, it seems that people's conversion stories can, can sometimes mimic some of this story. I don't know if this is all of it, but maybe part of it is our preoccupation with being happy and searching after happiness instead of really being joyful. One of my prayers for you, one of my prayers I would invite you to join with me in praying. I'm praying this in my own life this season. God, would you allow me to really seek and celebrate joy in this season? We're so preoccupied with happiness. Think about all the things you thought would make you happy, only to have that thing, person, or event betray you in the end. You worked so hard for that vacation, and it betrayed you. It didn't make you happy. You worked so hard for that job, or that position, or that relationship. It didn't make you happy. It betrays you in the end. And yet, we're like that friend of yours who keeps getting into the same relationship with a different guy every other month. And you're like, no, don't do it again. God, would you help me seek joy in this season and not be preoccupied with happiness? If you go home and watch any TV this week, look at every commercial and what they're selling you. They're selling you happiness, aren't they? They're not really selling you joy. Why? You can't buy joy. There's really not a market for joy. There's a huge market for happiness. So there's going to be all kinds of things coming at you. You watch for it. We are obsessed with happiness. God is good, and his story is so much bigger than now. And so that's part of our prayer 
this season as we walk forward. I was listening to a song this week, and it came on by a guy named Bebo Norman, and the song is called The Only Hope. This was just, you know, my iPhone doing random songs, and it came up, and I caught this line once again that's so powerful. Talking about the more of Jesus, it says this, I want a crumb, but you are a feast. I want a song, but you are a symphony. I want a star, but you are a galaxy. And I have resolved that I'm much better off in what you have for me. So if I were to look at this crowd, I wouldn't have told the crowd, stop celebrating Jesus. I wouldn't do that. And I don't want to tell you this morning, I don't want to be a downer on the party and say, don't celebrate Jesus. My challenge to all of us would be this, celebrate the real Jesus more. Celebrate the real Jesus more. It's not that your agendas and your priorities aren't important. God uses those things, which is incredible. But it's that they're subservient to the giant story that God is promoting. Remember the last couple of weeks? God has a totally different mission than what comes to the natural mind. Therefore, the way God organizes and and structures things is totally different. Because his mission and his leadership is all completely upside down. It's going, to take, it's going to take us seeking the things of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit and not by sight, not by flesh, to be able to, to track with what he's doing. My hope is that you'd see Jesus in this series. Past the party, past the hype, past even our preconceived notion and ideas of what Jesus is or who Jesus is. One of the gifts that Jesus leaves for us is this this Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at it in depth next week because we're going to actually get into the story and, and what actually happened when Jesus instituted this sacrament for the church. But it really is a gift for us to be able to commune with him in a unique way. Now, there's different ways to celebrate communion. I, I remember thinking as a kid one time, why do we celebrate communion? I mean, there are some things that you commemorate but you don't celebrate it. We'll commemorate 9-11 for for probably the rest of our lifetime. But we don't celebrate that event. Why do you not commemorate the Lord's table? Instead, you celebrate the Lord's table. Is it even appropriate to have balloons and communion in the same room? Is that allowed? I hope this. I hope that in the next few weeks as we celebrate communion... I hope that you will catch on to different nuances, different layers of the story. Think about other things that you celebrate, other celebrations that you have, and see if you can't tie them in to what God is doing on a much larger scale. Let's take your birthday. Anyone celebrate birthdays? I know at some point people stop celebrating them. They, they deny they even happen. You know, it's like, wait a minute, didn't you have a birthday? No, 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 no birthday. You're like Peter. You're the Peter of birthdays, okay? You're denying it three times and more. But we celebrate birthdays, right? As a, as a Christian, we celebrate the new birth. If we're going to celebrate a birthday, man, we ought to celebrate around the communion table and say, man, this is worth celebrating our new birth. How about 4th of July, Independence Day? Christ sets us free. Not free as a nation that's temporal. Christ sets us free for all eternity. How about your anniversary? You celebrate an anniversary. We are bound in covenant love to a perfect lover, to the groom, Jesus Christ. That's worth celebrating. We don't do this so much anymore today. I think it's falling away from us in some ways. But many nations, including ours, celebrate Victory Day, where a war ended, where a victory happened. You think about the fact that the war is over for us, that the victory is already won. In our household and around the nation, people celebrate Adoption Day. There's your birthday when you were born, but your Adoption Day is when you were brought into a forever family. All of these tie into communion. You could get as, as silly as the weekend. People, you know, TGIF, people celebrate the weekend. Jesus says, come, and give, come, and, uh, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you what? Rest. I mean, anything you celebrate, you could point back and say, man, this is so much bigger, so much better. We have a reason to celebrate the cross this morning. I'm going to invite the band up right now. Sometimes we sing in a more meditative and and reflective kind of way around communion, and that's appropriate. And we're going to get there in the weeks ahead. But sometimes we sing songs that are more upbeat and more celebrative 
And that's what this morning is going to be about. As we do that, I want to, I want to point you to a component of, of communion that we sometimes reference here. But there's this, there's this part of communion that looks back, but there's also part of communion that really looks forward. It's a forward-looking component. It's that our king is returning and that he's already won. And that's great news. And that's worth celebrating. Listen to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. It says, uh, this is Paul giving instruction to a church that was really screwing up communion, by the way, shoving people away and, and trying to get first and all kinds of nonsense happening at communion. And he says this. He talks about the body and the blood. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's looking back. Until he comes. So as we do this today, you might want to say it out loud. You might want to just say it to yourself. But you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. He's not still on a cross. Those images bug me where people carry that around all the time. I'm like, the cross is empty. He's not there anymore. The empty tomb. Is a, better, is a better picture. It's a better symbol for us. Part of how we're going to do it uh, this week, not part, the only way we're going to do it <laughs> this week, um, is sometimes we, we pass the trays and we, and we do it that way. Um, on this table, it says, in remembrance of me, and we're going to celebrate, we're going to participate from one table uh, this morning. That's just representative of the fact that we all come together to the table. So when the band starts to play, you're going to have one song to do this. So if we're on that third verse and you're wondering if now's the time, now's the time. Okay, But come on up and take, uh, take the, the little cracker bread uh, representing his body and take the, the juice and you can go take it back at your table you can, or back at your seat. You can take it up here. Um, you can linger. You can wander, whatever you want to do. But we're going to come and gather at one table this morning just representing the fact that we're all participating in this, in this one thing together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there's more to you. Uh, Jesus, we, we do celebrate um, these, these elements this morning because of what they represent. Our hearts rejoice with the hymn writers who talk about being plunged beneath a fountain of blood because it's in that very specific act that our hope is founded. And so we celebrate that you poured out your blood. We celebrate that it pleased God to crush you because what that meant for us, what that means for us is our new birth, is our celebration of being victorious over sin and over the fear of death. It's our own personal independence and our collective identity now as being the freed people of God. It's our card into a forever family. It's us making a covenant with you at the altar as the bride of Christ. And Jesus, for all of that and so much more, we celebrate you this morning. Amen.